And welcome to the latest episode of the Gen X VZ movie podcast. My name is Brian and I represent Gen X. And I'm Mackenzie and I'm Gen Z. And we are both a couple of movie nerds uh, who have been to film school and have worked in various uh, movie jobs. Me a few more than Mackenzie just because <laughs> I'm Gen X and she's Gen Z. Uh, so, um, but we do love talking about movies. Uh, we've had a lot of fun doing this so far and we're going to uh, go back to the Oscar theme. We've been kind of doing the Oscar since the Oscar nominees co- came out a couple of weeks ago. We've been talking a lot about that and, and what we like about this year's nominees and what we don't. And what we would like to do is do a little bit of Oscar history, perhaps, and give a rundown of our top five favorite best picture winners and our bottom five least favorite best picture winners, if that sounds about right. Yep. That sounds like the plan. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, do you want to start or do you want me to start? Or do we? Um, yeah. I'll start. Um, okay, go for it. Fear. I might be about to start a fight between us um, with my number five. <laughs> um, but, uh, it, and it, it, it's funny because when, we, when I was going through the list of Oscar winners, I was realizing it's much easier to have a top five or a, a bottom five um, than it is to come up with my top five, which um, I think is a good um, example of the Oscars not really meaning anything. They're all very subjective and quite often the best movie does not win. Um, Without question. Just for funsies. Um, so I'll start <laughs> uh, with number five and then work my way down. So my first one is Gone with the Wind. Oh, that's a <laughs> bold take. Uh, that's not even a hot take. That is a bold well, take. So here's the thing. And I think this is where the Gen X VZ conversation comes into play. I had to watch that movie in a class last year. And um, it was, you know, that was the one we were like building towards. Like it was the last movie we were going to watch of the semester. And because oh, that was the class. It was all films from that year, right? Yeah, it was all it was Hollywood. 1939 was the name of the class. And so we all had to watch like almost every movie that was nominated for Best Picture that year. Um, so I've seen all of them except one, I think. Um, I have not seen, never mind. I don't remember off the top of my head, but Gone well, with the Wind. Well, just, just, so just so everyone knows, let's, let's, I have the list up right here. Just, th- these are just the movies from 1939 that were nominated for Best Picture. So Gone with the Wind won, uh, Dark Victory, which is Betty Davis, right? Uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, which is a classic. Love Affair, I'm not, I don't know if I've seen that one. Um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, My God, directed by Frank Capra, starring James Stewart. I mean, um, amazing, amazing film. Ninochka, another amazing film of Mice and Men. Stagecoach, which is basically the movie that made John Wayne a star. Uh, The Wizard of Oz, Oh My God, and Wuthering Heights, right? So, I mean, that's that might be, if that's not the strongest year for nominations, it's certainly among them. Right. And and so I can understand why you could do an entire uh, semester based on the movies that came out that year. Right. So of all of those, the only ones I have not seen are Goodbye, Mr. Chips and Of Mice and Men, because I was sick that day. Um, but uh, I think watching Gone with the Wind in a modern context is really, really difficult. And it's it has nothing to do with the length. It has nothing to do with the way the film is made. It is a it is a beautifully crafted film. However, it is incredibly racist and is really difficult to watch in a modern setting. Um, and also, I'm sorry, Scarlett O'Hara is the most <laughs> annoying film heroine I've ever encountered in my entire life. And I know that's the point. I know she's not supposed to be likable, but like, good God, like there was no redemption at all for her. And so I I struggle with that one. I think from that year, almost any of the ones that I've seen, I would have preferred to see win to that. I think there's a case to be made that it deserved to win more than Love Affair, which wasn't my favorite. Um Ninochka also didn't really care for. But I think Wuthering Heights is amazing. The Wizard of Oz absolutely I think should have won purely based on um it's not only being a great movie, but also its technical achievements. It's, you know, was kind of ahead of its time in its special effects. Um, its use of Technicolor is incredible. And 
um, I think did more for film that year than Gone with the Wind did. And that's my hot take. <laughs> you know, I, and everything that you say is is reasonable. Uh, I am a fan of Gone with the Wind. Uh, um, you know, I don't like to look past the racism that's in the film, but I look at it as more of a a, a, a piece of, of history and it's of its time. And it also was dealing with a time where racism was just a daily way of life, right? Again, not to excuse it in any way, but it was more or less historically accurate. And I think that the simple fact, you also have to understand like what it was at its, like it was the Titanic of its day, right? right. I mean, it was based on a book that was the most popular book of its time. Uh, it was, it's had, you know, Clark Gable and Vivian Lee, who are two of the biggest stars in the world at the time. And it was just, it was, it was an event. And I believe to this day, it's still the most seen movie of all time. Like if you, if you judge box office on number of tickets sold, more people bought tickets to see Gone with the Wind than any movie in history. Um, but yes, I, I understand it is long. I, I too, when, when, because the first time I saw it was in a theater in LA, they were doing a, a special screening of it at a theater that's not even around anymore. And I remember the way it ended and I was like, what the what? Right. <laughs> but apparently there was going to be a sequel to the book, but the woman died before she was able to write the sequel. So it really kind of ended on a cliffhanger, if you will. Um, but unfortunately, we never found out that Han Solo got out of the carbonite when it comes to when it comes to <laughs> Gone with the Wind. So, uh, well, anyway, I, I don't want to belabor it too much. I get it. Uh, this is definitely a Gen VZ, a Gen X VZ moment, and we'll just have to agree to di disagree on this one. Yeah. Well, so moving on, uh, number four uh, is might might be surprising, um, but um, I also think this was kind of a, a tough year 1964 my fair lady um i think so i to be and also full disclosure i have only seen five or four of the five sorry three of the five that were nominated that year so obviously my fair lady um and then i've seen dr strangelove and mary poppins both of which i think are better movies than my fair lady um and that's not to say I don't like My Fair Lady. I do a lot, actually, uh, just as like a childhood nostalgia kind of thing. But I think story structure wise, I think entertainment value wise, Dr. Strangelove and Mary Poppins, I think, are better films than My Fair Lady. Yeah, I'll get into this a little bit later because of one of my least favorites. But yes, Dr. Strangelove is a, a more iconic movie than My Fair Lady it has a better story than My Fair Lady. It's more socially relevant to what was going on at the time than My Fair Lady was. Dr. Strangelove was a movie that was looking towards the future, and My Fair Lady was a movie that was looking towards the past. And I could make a very good case. And in fact, I, I blogged about this years ago when I was doing my best picture blogs, that My Fair Lady wasn't even the best musical that came out that year. Mary Poppins is far and away, in my opinion, a better movie than than My Fair Lady is. The songs are better. The story is better. The theme and the message is better. Uh, you know, if you want to compare George Banks to Henry Hyde, the character arc of, of, uh, of, the, of the antagonist, if you will, is more effective in Mary Poppins than it is in My Fair Lady. I mean, I I can go up and down the list. I, I I would watch Mary Poppins ten times before I would watch My Fair Lady once. Oh, and and in a no by the way column, you know Julie Andrews actually sang her songs, and um, Audrey Audrey Hepburn did not in the role that Julie Andrews made famous on Broadway. By the way, another role. By the way, there there <laughs> is there is a great. If, if anybody cares and wants to look it up on YouTube, there is a great speech, an acceptance speech that Julie Andrews gave when she won the Golden Globe for Mary Poppins, um, where she thanked uh, Jack Warner for not casting yes. her in My Fair Lady <laughs> because she was able to do Mary Poppins because she was not cast in My Fair Lady. And I just think that's like iconic. It's a great video. Bravo. Yes, bravo. <laughs> look that up if you can find it. Yeah, that's great. Um, so next on my list, I'm just double checking the year real quick so I make sure I get it right, is um, 2018 Green Book. 
Um, this was also a tough year, um, but I remember when they said Green Book, I almost wanted to punch a wall. Like, and I, I was so angry because if you look at Black Panther, Black Klansman, The Favorite, A Star Is Born, Roma, all better movies than Green Book, I believe, and especially when you compare like messaging, um, you know, I think. Black Klansman is a much more effective emotional film than Green Book is um, and does what it's trying to do a lot better than what Green Book did. Um, And I just think it's horrifying that it didn't win that year. Yeah, I am inclined to agree. I I liked Green Book. Um, I didn't think it should have won Best Picture. It it very much it, it was it was history repeating itself, right? Because it was very much a driving Miss Daisy kind of a moment. Yeah, right? totally. And um that is not on my list of least favorite, but it's close. It's real close. And 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 that was one where you look at that year and oh my god, I can't even believe the movies that that movie beat out for best picture, right? But yes, I could certainly make a case that Black Klansman, the favorite. A Star Is Born, Black Panther were all better than that. I wasn't a huge fan of Roma. Um, I don't know why it just didn't really speak to me. But I liked Bohemian Rhapsody too. I liked Bohemian Rhapsody a lot better, just for the sheer entertainment value. And I've always been a fan of Queen. Um, but my favorite movie that year was A Star Is Born. And uh, and yeah, I mean, again, look, I liked Green Book. Uh, I understand the controversy around it. Probably not your best picture winner. Yeah, and then um, funnily enough. Uh, number two on my list is just the year before, uh, 2017. Um, The Shape of Water won that year, um, which, <sighs> yeah. again, horrifying. Um, when the other movies you had were, uh, I mean, I didn't like all of them, but I'll just give you the list. Call Me By Your it Name, Darkest year. Hour, yeah. Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, The Post, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. That is actually one of the few years I have seen every movie that was nominated. Um, I did not love Call Me By Your Name um, and did not love Darkest Hour, but I pretty much liked every other movie that year. And to be honest, I think Get Out should have won. It was, um, and it was completely a dark horse. Like I, looking back, of course, there's like no way it would have won. But um, I think because it came out of nowhere and because what Jordan Peele did with that movie was so shocking and effective and new and different, um, especially compared to every other movie that was nominated that year. Um, I just, I would have been so happy to see it win. And I still think it was the best movie um, of that year. And the shape of water. I mean, I don't know. I, I just don't know. It felt like such a swing and a miss for me. So I, I agree. I mean, I'm a fan of Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Love, Um, you know, but I will say when he hits, he hits and when he misses, he misses pretty badly. And I I wanted to like the shape of water. I really wanted to like it so much, but it just, it, it, it just went so far off the rails for me. And it was so, it was just, you talk about, you know, get out being out of left field and it was, Shape of Water was way beyond all of that. I, I I feel like that was one of the years where maybe the Academy kind of outsmarted itself by going for the most maybe like artsy movie and the most enigmatic movie because it is certain it's certainly an enigmatic movie and it does have interesting thematic components to it. But yeah, I mean every like Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Three Birds Outside of Ebbing, Missouri were all better. In fact, I think Three Billboards Three Billboards was probably that was the movie that got the most kind of like guttural emotional reaction out of me that year. Um but uh but but yeah, Get Out I think was was the movie that was really the biggest event. That was the movie that really got people's attention more than anything and probably would have been the one that I would have voted for that year. Yeah. And, you know, we're running a little long in this first segment, but I will quickly just give my number one pick. Um, This might be, you know, obvious, but um, 1977, Annie Hall won and beat Star Wars. Um, Yeah, say no more. 
<laughs> genuinely criminal, crim- literally criminal behavior. Um, I have only seen that year. I've only seen Annie Hall. Well, let me take that back. I've seen Star Wars and I've seen The Goodbye Girl. I have seen approximately 40 minutes of Annie Hall before I had to turn it off because I couldn't take it anymore. I hate that movie so much. I can't even tell you. I literally, and I tried. I really tried. I was like, I'm going to watch this whole thing. I'm just going to sit through it. I have to know. I have to, like, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. And uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Woody Allen either. Uh, like, there, the, before the just the disgusting grossness about him became public, and he was just kind of looked at as one of these kind of great auteur filmmakers. I just never, I just never got him. I just never got his humor. I, 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 I appreciated Annie Hall for what it was as sort of like a historical document when it comes to feature films. But no, it had no business beating Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars is a seminal moment in movie history. I mean, you want to talk about a, a, a historical document for filmmaking. Say what you want about what's happened to the franchise post like Empire Strikes Back, essentially. But Star Wars as a cultural phenomenon was really a turning point in cinema. I don't think I'm overstating anything by saying that. And yeah, giving anything other than Star Wars Best Picture that year was criminal. And I think Annie Hall another was again one of those moments where I think the Academy was trying to outsmart itself a little bit by giving the Oscar to this auteur instead of this young, fresh, new way of making movies that was probably in reality in reality scaring the shit out of everybody. Right? I think yeah, that's true. It was it was it was literally scaring the shit out of everyone in Hollywood because they didn't want to reward this kind of new special effects way of making movies. And they gave it to this other one that was closer in line to classic cinema. Yeah, I I could go on and on and on about this one. But yes, you're right. It was a pretty criminal event. That's for sure. But if anybody wants to watch a movie from that year that features a neurotic woman and a quirky, silly guy, watch The Goodbye Girl. It's actually good. There you go. Uh, (laughs) Good plug. And that's my bottom five. All right, we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we will go to my bottom five. And we are back with segment two of the Gen X VZ movie podcast. We just listened to Mackenzie go through her bottom five list of her least favorite movies to ever win the Oscar. I will be doing the same thing now. These these are these aren't necessarily my my movies that I thought were where another movie was more deserving. These are just the ones that I just really did not like. Um, I, I I can't say it any plainer than that. The, these movies, they might have won Best Picture, but I could not stand any of them. So I guess we'll start off with my number five worst Oscar winner of all time. And that will go to the Oscar winner of, I believe it was 1968. And that was Oliver. <laughs> You're chuckling. Yeah. No, that's valid. <laughs> Oh, it's such a dreadful movie. I, I I will say this. It's almost saved by its third act um, when it becomes a bit of a chase movie. But I, I don't know. I sat through it and I tried real hard to give it the benefit of the doubt and understand where it was coming from. And again, I think the, the problem for me is like as we as we talked a little bit of earlier about how um, uh you know, Annie Hall was looking backward and Star Wars was looking forward. The same thing kind of applies. Like in 1967, In the Heat of the Night won. And in 1969, Midnight Cowboy won. And and both of those movies were definitely forward-looking and forward-thinking movies, right? Like they were embracing a new style of filmmaking. They were breaking away from the studio system. They were largely filmed on location. Um they had flashes of nudity, right? They were dealing with subject matter that just wouldn't have been dealt with before. And in 1968, you had a musical winning and you had a stretch in the fifties and sixties where, where I, th- I want to say like six musicals won over the course of 15 years or something like that. And Oliver was the last one. And it really, I feel like was Hollywood kind of giving the musical one last gasp, especially when you look at what was nominated against it. 
in um, Funny Girl, The Lion in Winter, Rachel, Rachel, and Romeo and Juliet. I've not seen Rachel, Rachel, but I think Funny Girl, The Lion in Winter, and Romeo and Juliet were all superior movies to Oliver. Yeah, I would agree. It It is kind of a, a silly visual looking at 1967, 1968, 1969 all together. And just yeah. the heat of the night, which is this just amazing drama midnight cowboy which is gritty i mean both of them are are gritty and really feel like that era like social statements you know? right they're like social and, statements right and they're they are time capsule capsules of the the you yes. know 60s to the 70s and yep. Yep. you know it it and then you've got oliver which is just <laughs> kind of it's just kind of silly it's it's silly but it, it really i think is yeah i think it's like like you said just the the academy saying like oh but but it's past. a musical <laughs> but right? it's a yeah. musical we love musicals like we not in the seventies you don't no not not not, not, in the late not 60s. during Vietnam you don't <laughs> no there yes the the world was a much more serious place in nineteen sixty eight far too serious a place for a movie like Oliver <laughs> to be winning Best Picture I'm afraid uh anyway so that's yeah that's that one my number uh my number or least favorite uh, Oscar winner is An American in Paris. Another musical, I'm afraid. I, I think we're going to, we're probably going to see a theme here a little bit for my <laughs> least favorite ones. Um, so when I was but, going through and whittling down my list, An American in Paris was on there as well. I was hate really, yeah. that movie so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's really bad. I mean, it's, you know, and I like Gene Kelly as much as the next guy. You know, I, I think the wrong Gene Kelly movie won Best Picture, right? I mean, it should have been Singing in the Rain. Um, I'd have to go back and see what what year what the, was it, it would have been up against that year. But I mean, an uh, American in Paris is just it's not entertaining. There's that really long, tedious uh, dance number um, with Gene Karen, Ballet. I think. Yeah, the Dream Ballet, and and it's just. I mean, it's fine. I mean, I guess it would be fine maybe if it was on stage, but in a movie, it just, it's like pulling teeth. It just grinds the whole movie to a halt, right? And then you have the, the, um, the main character and then the, the Nina Foch character who's like trying to be cool to him and hook him up with all this stuff. And he kind of blows her off to hook up with, with Gene Karen. And I'm like, I don't know if I like anybody in that movie. Like, like everybody, like the people you're supposed to not like in that movie are kind of sympathetic and the people that you're supposed to like are all just kind of douchey. Yeah, it's such and an the music isn't that good. Movie. No well no, I mean it's like it it feels like the cut songs from like every other Arthur Freed movie. Like he didn't have a yeah. place for him anywhere else. And so he slapped them all into an American in Paris. Yes. And especially so I've not seen Decision for Dawn or Quo Vadis, but I have seen a place in the sun and I have seen a streetcar named Desire. And dear God, both of those movies are so much better than an American yeah. in Paris is. I, again, I just think that we, it, this movie was kind of like the beginning of the run of musicals um, that would kind of dominate through the through the fifties and into the sixties. And uh, you know, some of them were more deserving than others. This one was just not deserving. I'm afraid. Um, quick, quick side ahead. note, or tan maybe yes. tangent. Sorry, but. Uh, do you feel like an American in Paris was maybe like one of those like, oops, we messed up, not nominating like a makeup call? in the rain. We'll give it to an American in Paris. It it could have been. I, I I wrote about the make the Academy makeup call for a movie that's just outside my bottom five. Um, uh, in 1945, The Lost Weekend one, which was directed by uh, Billy Wilder, because the year before. Double Indemnity had lost to Going My Way, uh, which was another musical that was probably not really as good as people like to remember it. That was Bing Crosby, and he saves a he saves a Catholic church from going under. Um, but like The Lost Weekend is a movie about an alcoholic trying to recover, and he goes on a binge on a bender for a weekend instead of going with his brother to get dried out. And it's just not it's it's more of like a PSA right than a right than a movie and i think that that was probably a makeup call and i think that yeah i think it's a good point that maybe american and american in paris is probably the makeup call for um singing in the rain not getting it when it should have possibly um 
All right, my next one, uh, number three. This might be a hot take for some people, but I don't know. Around the World in 80 Days is my third least favorite movie of all time, or at least Oscar winner. Uh, it was a it was a spectacle when it came out. It was in color. It was in cinemascope. It was a, a visual spectacle that is short on story, in my humble opinion. Right? I mean, it's basically a race, or, or it's you know, a guy trying to get around the world in eighty days, and another guy trying to stop him. David Niven, right, is the main character. Oh yeah. But but I mean, it beat Giant, right? With- and it beat the King. <laughs> I know. Hold hold talk about it. Hold back there, killer. Yeah. <laughs> right. It beat, and it also, what else did it beat? It beat uh, Giant and it beat The King and I, and it beat The Ten Commandments. Right. And I mean, say what you want about The King and I and The Ten Commandments, but they're, they're, they're visual, visual spectacles as well. The Ten Commandments, certainly. I mean, that. And, and you know, so the, is Giant but, to a certain degree. I mean, giant. you have these yeah. big sweeping landscapes. And I mean, Elizabeth Taylor, for Christ's sake. Like, you know, yeah. it is also a visual spectacle. In James and Dean, itself. right? Yep. And, I mean, together on screen. It's crazy. Yeah. 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 I mean, Rock it's Hudson. That the screen can even hold both of them. Yeah. <laughs> like three of the most beautiful people I'm that sorry. Hollywood has ever seen taken in one, in one movie. It had it's to be four amazing. hours long just to give all of them the screen time, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's that to me was a big swing and a miss by the Academy. I mean, I, I think, you know, if you want to, again, I think Around the World in 80 Days is a, is a historical document. Your grandmother told me about how, like, they all skipped school and went to see it because it was such mm-hmm. an amazing, amazing movie to see at the time. And, and, and I guess maybe of its day it works, but certainly it has not stood the test of time. Whereas the other movies that were nominated, that especially Giant and the Ten Commandments, certainly, um, and probably even The King and I, um, certainly stood the test of time, in my opinion, much more effectively than Around the World in 80 Days did. Okay, my second <clears throat> least favorite Oscar movie of all time is the second movie ever to win Best Picture, and it is The Broadway Melody. Uh, the Broadway Melody... It's just an awful movie. I'm sorry, it, <laughs> I, and I, I understand. Like it's 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 a, it's a talkie, right? It's and it's the first year that a talkie won. There, there was only you know the previous year a movie called Wings won Best Picture, and it was really it, it, Best Picture was kind of divided into two categories in the first year, so it wasn't really the best picture that we know today until 1929, and it, it, it's. They didn't quite know what they had yet in the technology of sound, right? Um, The acting was not what it would be, right? I mean, they were all just kind of learning how to use this new technology, not only the filmmakers, but the actors, right? And the storytelling, you know, sound set storytelling back in movies probably by about 10 years. I think it, it really took cinema a couple of years at least before they figured out exactly how to make it work on a, on a consistent basis. And certainly, uh, certainly the Broadway melody is an example of that. I mean, you, it's, it's hard to fault them because they just didn't know what they were doing, but there were silent movies that came out that year that probably would have been more deserving of best picture because even as silent movies, they probably told more compelling stories and were better fashioned films. But I think politically, the Academy was embracing sound as a technology and needed a sound movie or a talkie to win best picture to kind of give it the gravitas that they, that, that it needed in order to be able to advance. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, it's just a really God awful movie is forever named best picture. Well, and there, there it is. <laughs> um <laughs> Just quickly, because I I have actually not seen any of the movies from that year. It's harder to have access to a lot of those movies from the very early days of the Oscars. So I'm going to attempt to see all of them if I can. But um, I was just reminded of on Letterboxd, you know, people leave reviews. And I just want to give you a brief um, sentence from this one Letterboxd review by someone named Thorkel August Otterson. Do you okay. need an inspiration to commit suicide? Look no further. This film will rob you of almost any desire to live. <laughs> yes. I couldn't have said it better myself. So that there you was go. yes. Quick, quite and succinct. Yes. Excellent. 
Uh, okay, my number one least favorite Best Picture winner of all time comes from the year 1963, and it is Tom Jones. <laughs> this movie yeah. is horrible. And and what's what's the, the biggest bummer about it, right, is that Doctor Strangelove should have come out that year, and Doctor Strangelove right. should have won Best Picture that year. But the Kennedy assassination pushed Dr. Strangelove back to 1964. And we will forever not know what would have happened. But I cannot imagine. Well, I can't imagine a world because this is the Academy that we're talking about. <clears throat> I, I can totally imagine them screwing Dr. Strangelove in, in favor of Tom Jones anyway. But t- to me, Tom Jones is perhaps the most undeserving I mean, it came out against Cleopatra, which we all know is a disaster, but still a great film. How the West was won, and freaking Lilies in the Field. Lilies of the Field. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you could tell me Lilies of the Field shouldn't have won that year? And Tom Jones? Oh. And complete I can't miscarriage even... miscarriage of justice. Complete miscarriage of... And, and, I mean, look, it's, it's a body avant-garde kind of a movie that probably... It, it it deserves at least a little bit of credit for kind of starting to take movies into a new direction, right? Kind of moving movies away from the old cinema or the old studio system, giving them kind of this more avant-garde kind of feel. But it was just, it really was just sloppy and it was boring. And I kept waiting for it to get better and it just never did. It just never got better. It was bad. It was just bad all the way what's, through. What's funny is that's how I felt watching Cleopatra. Um, not so oh, much yeah. that it was sloppy. It was definitely not. It was very well produced. But as far as the f- actual content of the film went, yeah. I kept waiting for it to get better. So that was a weird yeah. year. Yeah, it was it was a tough year. I mean, it prob- again, I think if if Dr. Strangelove had kept its original release date in December of that year, uh, I think it probably would have been the runaway winner um, because it's head and shoulders, chest chest, neck, and breast above all of the rest of those movies, you know? So I agree. All right. Well, those are my bottom five. Uh, We'll take a quick break and we'll come back with Mackenzie's top five. And we are back for segment three of Gen X VZ movie podcast. We are discussing our least favorite and our most favorite best picture winners. So we just, each of us went through our bottom five and now I'm going to send it over to Mackenzie, and she's going to now give us her top five most favorite Best Picture winners. Yeah, so like I said before, this was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be because I realized that like most of the time, my favorite movies don't win Best Picture. Um, but uh, I, I think there's I've got a good mix of more contemporary films and... Um, more retro films so um number five is 2019 parasite um Hmm. this is on my list for a couple reasons um i first of all i really enjoyed the movie it really surprised me and i think really scratched my you know the the film student itch in my brain um but uh also, just the fact that it felt like progress for the Academy to give it to um, an international film. It felt really exciting when it happened because, you know, like that doesn't happen. It would get international film and that would be great. But it, it was it felt like the horizons were being broadened with Parasite. Um, and, you know, I mean, that was also a tough year. I really enjoyed most of the movies that year except for a very select two (laughs) um um, uh but yeah i i i think it's a a really really great movie and it was awesome that it won best picture in my opinion yeah it was kind of like um that year's life is beautiful only yeah a little right yeah um uh i was really hoping that life is beautiful would have won the year that it was nominated but um you know wasn't to be obviously i i i liked parasite it wasn't my favorite movie that year there were a couple of movies i would have voted for ahead of it um i probably i've probably liked jojo rabbit better 
Uh, I liked The Joker better. I know that's one of the movies you hated that year. Um, and I liked 1917 better. Um, but I think you're right. For, from a strictly looking at it from the point of view of, of the Academy making progress, it was obviously all people of color, right? It was Korean. Everybody in it was Korean. Um, it was all the, all the all the dialogue was in Korean. And so it was certainly uh, an opportunity for the Academy to show that it was going to put its money where its mouth was when it came to diversity and, and, um, and all of that. So, yeah, I think it was, it, it, it certainly, <clears throat> it didn't make me want to throw my phone at the TV, but it wasn't my favorite movie that year. And that's fair. Because yeah. I mean, that was a tough year. I mean, I did really love 1917. I loved Little Women yeah. so much. Jojo Rabbit, I loved. Um, but, you know, I, yeah, I, I think that was that was just an interesting year for sure. It was an interesting year. Yeah, for sure. Um, so number four, we're throwing it back a little to 1965. Um, the Sound of Music. Um, uh, I, ha- yeah. I had to throw a musical in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, the... <sighs> you know, iconic, iconic behavior all the way through. Um, I, I mean, Julie Andrews is just absolutely incredible. The music is amazing. I love the story. Um, and it feels like big in a way that, you know, I think musicals of that time had like had that same feeling of just being big and, you know, just huge productions. But I think what was really nice about it was it was so on location and, not just on a studio lot like the landscapes are beautiful and you know the 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 costuming is amazing and yeah i just i i love everything about the sound of music yeah i i think the sound of music is probably my favorite musical that ever won best picture um i don't know if it's my favorite musical of all time that probably goes to mary poppins but um i think the sound of music simply just from an iconic standpoint, right? I mean, the opening shot and the hills are alive with the sound of music. I mean, that in and of itself is again, a document to, to film history. But I think what's underrated about the sound of music is how compelling the story is. Yeah. Right. Especially in the second half. I mean, the, the first half is, is, you know, sort of the iconic songs, you know, where doe a deer, a female deer and the sound of music. And what do you do with a problem like Maria and all of on and on and on. Right. A few of my favorite things, right? I mean, again, the list just keeps going. But when you get into the second half and it starts to get more into the Nazis taking over and Captain Von Trapp is going to have to make a choice between, um, you know, taking care of his family by getting them out of Austria or taking care of his family by going and fighting for the Germans, which he's absolutely morally opposed to. And he has this real inner conflict that he has to figure out how to overcome. And there are real consequences involved, right? Like the the boy that the that the oldest daughter liked goes Nazi. Um, you know, uh, all of their friends kind of go Nazi, and so it, it it's it's so much more than the music. As great as the music is, you you add on top of that this really deep and compelling story, and you get just one of the great films in the history of cinema. And I think for me to just, and this is partially me loving movies, but then also what I love about musicals and musical theater is when a musical goes so much deeper and can, you know, there, there's a stereotype of musicals that I think Oliver kind of fits. And I think to a certain degree, well, definitely My Fair Lady fits, which is, you know, sometimes they're kind of surface level. There's not a lot going on. There, it's, it's, you know, people break out into song and that's it. Right. But the sound of music, I feel like any good musical, you know, it it has deeper meaning and every song feeds the plot and is important to the plot. And, um, you know, it starts out as this fun, happy musical, but then takes a real pivot, but is still a musical. So anyway, I love that. Just real quick to that point, I, I wrote a blog a few years back about, you know, equating the musical to the action movie. and when they're not done well, basically the, the the only reason for the story in a musical is to get you from one song to the next. Just like in an action movie, the only reason for the story is to get you from one action sequence to the, the next. But when they're done well and when they're done, you know, for every sound of music, there's a diehard, right? Like yeah. where it's it's a really great movie to go along with all of that amazing action. Yeah. 
That's a, I actually didn't know you did that. That's a, that's a great analogy. Um, so bringing it a little more recent, um, 2022, everything, everywhere, all at once. I know we disagree about this year. Um, I actually, (laughs) I, I, I don't think it was the strongest year we've seen recently, but, um, I mean, everything, everywhere, all at once just packs a punch. I love that movie so much. It's one of my, it's one of my favorite movies that has been nominated for best picture recently um let alone win um you know i i think it's it's so smart and different and i love that it um you know like plays into this multiverse trend that we have going on right now but does it in a way that is just so emotional and kind of um existential um and has something to say it is it's you know it's an action movie with a really good story to get you to each action scene so it's like you were just talking about but yeah that's my number three yeah look i i i get it it i last year was it was it was a bit of a weak year i really feel like 2022 was a bit of a weak year um i i I don't have a problem with everything everywhere all at once winning up. In fact, I probably after, cause I saw all of them last year, it probably was my favorite movie of the ones that were nominated. Um, and I even worked on one of the ones that was nominated. So, uh, and it wasn't that one. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I, I think that, um, and it, 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 look, it took chances, right? Like, like the, yes, it dealt with a multiverse in, in a unique way, but like, the whole hot dog figure fingers. Yeah, right, bit, right. Exactly. And, and, and the rocks talking to each other and, but like these really silly off the wall things, but underneath like in the subtext in those scenes, some really serious issues were being debated and discussed. And, and yes, thematically, you know, I, I liken it to sort of a modern day wizard of Oz yeah, I feel like it was very much a that in in that kind of vein, stylistically a completely different movie, but obviously, but um, thematically and and story wise, uh, you know, and, and again, like a, a very prototypical archetypal hero's journey going on in it. Um, yeah, I mean, I th- I think it's I think it's a terrific movie. I don't know if it's one of my favorite movies of all time, but it certainly is is uh, was my favorite movie last year. Yeah, but you know what? You're a man in your fifties, and I'm an early <laughs> know, 20, yeah. mid twenties girl, and it it just spoke to me on such a deep, deep level. Yeah. Like I saw that movie. I think I cried. I saw it in the movie theater. I think four times by the time it was over, and I cried every single time. I love. Well, it. and it's a mother. It's a mother daughter movie, right? right? And it's it. And the mother and the daughter are antagonists in the movie, and uh, you know. I've been around mothers and daughters now for the better part of the last 25 years. And I, in a lot of ways, they hit the nail on the head as far as the challenges that mothers and daughters face and those very unique challenges that mothers and daughters face and and how difficult they can be to get by. Even though mothers and daughters almost always still love each other, just how differently they're approaching the world. It's a very complex dynamic. And I think that that movie captured it very well. It did. I agree. Um, going back again, even farther this time, uh, 1950, All About Eve. Um, is this love- number one or number two? This is number two. Sorry. Okay. Uh, number two, All About Eve. Um, I I mean, oh, yeah. I like, I don't know what, I don't know even know what to say about this movie. It's just so, so good. And again, it kind of just, you know, this is a, a good example of speaking to both my um, passions, which are movies and theater. It's about an aging theater actress who is you know being usurped by a younger woman um in kind of like a sinister creepy way and it's it's dark in some spots that's kind of takes you by surprise it's again completely existential um and also just funny it's really funny it's got some of the best dialogue of any movie ever made in my oh, opinion. Yeah. I don't think I'm being hyperbolic by saying that. I, I think if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're someone who's interested in screenwriting and writing good dialogue, or even if you're interested in playwriting, um, the dialogue in All About Eve is something that you should absolutely be familiar with 
it's sophisticated, it's also edgy, it's sarcastic, it's biting, it's 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 every it's it's everything everywhere all at once, right? I mean, the the dialogue in All About Eve and the story and the character development and how some characters are sort of like shape shifting from being good guys to bad guys and bad guys to good guys. It's really just a complex, complete, amazing film. I I love All About Eve. It's it's definitely in my top. It's I don't know if it's not in my top five, but it's definitely my top ten. Yeah. I and it's one that like I have not seen in a long time, but did leave like such an impact on me that like I I normally don't like I've got really horrible long term memory, so like I tend to not remember very specific scenes, very specific pieces of dialogue, but I remember a lot of bits about that movie because it just is so it's just so gripping also weird yeah. random marilyn monroe cameo for five seconds and yeah. she's always credited she's all like almost always credited as like oh also starring marilyn monroe she's in it for yeah. literally 30 seconds well um, it's a little longer than that but she's in it for like one scene she, she's i think she's in it for like no more than she's five in it, minutes. She's, in two, she's in two scenes she's in it for maybe five or ten minutes but yeah i mean but yes, she's she's not in it for very long. You, should, you again. I was going to say you should go back if you haven't watched it in a long time. You should go back and watch it again. I think you will find that it holds up, and you're and you'll love it just as much as you did. It was also the last movie that I ever showed at my Pizza in the Movie Night series at DreamWorks. Yeah. So yeah, love that one. Yeah. All right, and number one, we're bringing you back again a little bit. We're kind of pin pinballing around <clears throat> years here, uh, but 2006, The Departed. Um, i love this movie so much i love it so much it's so smart the editing in this movie is genuinely unreal it's so good it's intricate it is um it's just it's amazing i love it so much and like i mean putting matt damon and leonardo dicaprio together is just like and not even together but like yeah, I as think they're only together on screen other. once. They're yeah. only on screen together once as foils to each other. It, they are amazing. Yeah. So good. Well, and then not even only that, right? But I mean, you've also got Jack Nicholson. It's uh, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an incredible cast. It, Alec, like, Alec Baldwin, um, Mark Wahlberg, right? I mean, like the casting in that movie all by itself is incredible. Yeah, it's so, it's so good. And, yeah. you know, I mean... Again, I just think the concept, too, is so, so genius. Like, two guys infiltrating each other's worlds, not knowing the other exists. Like, it really... And it gets, like, it gets intense. It is really, really intense. It's probably one of my favorite Martin Scorsese films, if not my favorite Martin Scorsese (sighs) film. Uh, Yeah, it's got to be up there. Maybe that's another... uh podcast is our top five Scorsese movies um I I would for me it would have a hard time beating Goodfellas but uh it's it certainly is in the conversation there's no question about it it's in the conversation and it deserves to be yeah it's 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 a master it's probably as close to a masterpiece as there is and it's it's interesting looking at just Martin Scorsese's body of work when he was really making gangster films it's kind of cool to see him like bring it into a a different time period because you know he was making them in the 70s and 80s but he can still do it in 2006 yeah yeah it was pretty impressive yep all right well we're going a little over time now so we'll take a quick break and we will come back and i will reveal my top five best uh picture winners which might um give us some fireworks we'll see oh god All right, we are back with the final segment of the Gen X VZ movie podcast. We are discussing our bottom five least favorite Academy Award winners for Best Picture, and we are also discussing our top five most favorite winners for Best Picture. And now is my my turn to reveal my top five uh, most favorite uh, Best Picture winners. And I will start with number five, and this one is uh, from from the nineties. I want to say it's ninety three. Um, Schindler's List is my number five movie of all time. Um, yes, 1993. And boy, that was a great year too. Uh, it beat out The Fugitive, In the Name of the Father, The Piano, and The Remains of the Day. Um, Schindler's List is probably, 
maybe like my second or third favorite Spielberg movie, probably behind Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jaws. I would have to put Schindler's List up there. It's so powerful. It's so riveting. And it's just, it's the, it might be the least Spielberg Spielberg movie, maybe other than Jaws, right? Um, Important people are killed in it. Innocent people are put in harm's way and actually experience harm. He did everything he could to get the brutality of of the Nazis in the concentration camps during World War II. And just the whole man's inhumanity to man comes through in that movie. Like almost no other movie that I can think of other than maybe a movie like Platoon. Is, oh, yeah. it, you know, another Best Picture winner that, that, that just really go into, into just the inhumanity that human beings can show each other sometimes. And the ironic thing too, is how inhumane the Nazis were to the Jews and the Nazis were the ones who considered Jews to be less than human and, and just how inhuman they were to them. It's, it's so, it, it's so powerful and so emotional. And it just, it's the kind of movie that almost makes you angry when you, when you watch it, right? It's like, there are probably three movies like that, that won Best Picture, right? Platoon, I just mentioned, uh, 12 Years a Slave would be another one. And and Schindler's List. I think you, they're all kind of cut from the same cloth, but Schindler's List to me is just, just a step above step above uh, those other two. Yeah, you know, I actually have not seen Schindler's List all the way through. I feel like I've seen most of it now in like clips and segments, um, and I could probably piece the whole thing together in my brain. But it, yeah, I just have never been able to, and I've never had the opportunity to just sit down and watch it. I need to. Um, but it is one of those like there are a couple. It's a hard movie to watch. It's there a there hard are a movie couple like that that have won Best Picture or have just been nominated. That like sitting down and watching them just feels like I don't know how I'm going to do that. Yeah, I will say this. So, so years ago, um, I I went through and watched every Best Picture winner and blogged about them. You can find that at MonumentScripts.com/slash/blog/slash/BestPictureBlogs. Uh, you can find the whole list. I I took about two years and did one a week and and every year I update it. And I saw Schindler's List when it came out in theaters back in 93 or 92, 93, I guess it was, and vowed that I would never see it again because I was so emotionally bludgeoned by the time I got out of that movie theater that I said to myself, I can never put myself through that again. And then when I was doing the Best Picture blogs and it came to 1993, I was like, well, I have to watch it because it won Best Picture. And I was so glad that I did. You know, I was however many years older, 20 years older at that time. And I was able to maybe appreciate some of the nuances in it more than I had before. But it's such an important movie. And it's such a well-crafted movie. And the thing that, this is going to sound weird, but the thing that Spielberg did in that movie so well was he added a lot of humor in it. There are a lot of genuinely funny moments in Schindler's List. Because there had to be. If it was all as serious as as everything that was going on, you seriously would have slit your wrists when you walked out of that movie theater, right? Right. But the, the the humor that he was able to inject in that movie also humanized everything that was going on, and helped bring balance to the to the film in a way that you wouldn't expect. And so, yes, I would say Schindler's List is a movie. If you're afraid of seeing it, if you if you don't know you can put yourself through that. It's you. Every, every, it's a movie that everyone should see. It's an important enough film that everyone should should see. Should see Schindler's List. And I will eventually. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, number four on my list, and we're going to go as we did with Mackenzie. We're going to go back a little ways. We're going to go back to the fifties and to the beginning of Cinemascope, and uh, we're going to go with um, Lawrence of Arabia. Actually, was that the was that in the six? No, I'm sorry, that was 1962. Lawrence of Arabia was 1962. Um, that is my number four favorite movie of of Oscar, in Oscar history, and for the for the one big reason that the first time I saw it, I was able to see it on a big screen. And there are some movies when you see them, especially when you see them for the first time, they must be seen on the big screen. Lawrence of Arabia, 2001. Um, uh, Sound of Music, right? Like, like these movies play, and I, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know what's 
messes up in our minds that when we see something like that on a small screen, it makes a completely different experience than when you see it projected on a big screen. But a movie like Lawrence of Arabia, if you've never seen it, if it comes to your town and it's showing at a local theater, do yourself a favor, block out the three and a half hours that it's going to take to see it and see that movie. It's worth every minute. I think the thing about that is, and I completely agree, like seeing something like that on a big screen just completely changes everything. And I think, you know, obviously I'm not, a, I, I don't understand the science of the brain, but I think <laughs> there is something to, you know, we watch movies to be transported. And I think when things are big and lifelike, it's so much easier to feel transported than when you're watching it on like a laptop screen or a computer screen or even yes. just a TV. Like you, there is an, an immersiveness to it when it's on a big screen. Yes, without a doubt. And, you know, you're not, you know, we had this discussion a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about even a smaller movie like May, December, right? Where when you watch it at home and there's distractions, there's the cell, especially today, like your cell phone might buzz or the cat might bother you or somebody might call you from another, who, who knows what is going to happen, right? But when you're, but even so, like the immersiveness goes way beyond that. Like if you're, especially if you're able to see something like that, like, like a 70 millimeter print, right? Like oh, really yeah. big where you can count the grains of sand, you know, where you can see the textures in the cliffs and, and, and in their clothing and you can see the dirt on their faces and, and just the, the, and the, th again, the thing about a movie like Lawrence of Arabia, what they did really, really well in that movie was the scale of it, right? Like they yeah. did a lot of really long shots that shows these vast expanses of desert and the, and the people riding on their camels were like this big on it. And, and that was a part of what made it compelling was these people were trying to tame this world and they were shown to be so insignificant inside it and their egos were such that they thought that they could that they could contain it and they could tame it and that's that's one of these things where I, I, I you know a lot of a lot of these big advances in technology a lot of times will set movies back right like we talked about sound earlier like sound set movie making back for probably I said 10 years probably closer to five years until they were really able to master it and and get a sense of how it's going to work in the films right cinemascope was another one of these things right like how, like um around the world in 80 days which had come out maybe six or eight years before this movie really didn't know that how to use the technology it just wanted to show these big grand sweeping shots that did nothing for the story and it wasn't until he got to a movie like lawrence of arabia where uh, william wyler i think is the director of that he was able to to take the vastness of these of, of these shots that he was doing and show how small and insignificant people were in them. So he was able to use the size of the, of the film to his advantage in creating the thematic components of the story. So I think that that for me is one of the things that makes Lawrence of Arabia uh, so great. I went a little bit soapbox there. Sorry about that. <laughs> All right, moving on to number three. Uh, my number three most favorite winner for best picture is gone with the wind yeah and there it is <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> and i think again this is probably the gen x vz component of all of this and and um you know i look at i look Here's at gone with the, i look at gone with the wind as it's one of the great love stories of all time i think it's one of cinema's great love stories um it's about a, a a girl who thinks she's in love with somebody and can't, and you know, that person is unattainable and she can't figure out that the right person is right in front of her. And it's become a pretty influential story, I think in a lot of ways. And this was again, a, st a story that used a widescreen format to its advantage before other people were. Um, and it was, uh, you know, for me, it was, for me, it was an advancement in, in how movies were made and uh, how stories were told. And I think Clark Gable gives one of the great, great performances. I mean, as, as ineffectual as Scarlett O'Hara is as a, as a protagonist, Vivian Lee gives one of the great performances of all time in that role. And Clark Gable for me really establishes in that movie, what a leading man should be. I think every leading man moving forward after that movie owes an homage to Clark Gable. Able 
for establishing what a leading man is in in Gone with the Wind. Yeah, no, and and that I completely agree with. I think the one thing in this movie that I can absolutely not fault at all in any respect is the performances in this movie. From top to bottom, they're all incredible. And yeah, I mean, Clark Gable is probably, you know, he, he I, I wish that Scarlett's character was maybe a little more like his in that he's not super likable, but he has redeeming qualities. You know, I don't see her having any redeeming qualities, but he's not so sympathetic as Olivia de Havilland's character. Right. So like, right. He, I, I really do like his arc in the movie. Um, one thing I will say though, that I've thought about a bit since watching that movie more recently is, uh, I, it took me a bit when watching it to like, I was like, why is this considered the greatest love story of all time? That doesn't make any sense. Like they're terrible for each other. She's horrible. Like they don't even end up together. Like, what are we doing? But then I thought about it a little bit and I was wondering if maybe it isn't more that the love story is her and Tara, the like, well, yeah, I think that's a has. great point. I, th- yes. I think, th- I think yes. that if you look at it that way and you reframe it that way, that tagline makes more sense to me. Yeah. But I don't think I, you can look at it as a as a, the greatest love story between her and, and Clark Gable's character at all. It's horrible. But and, and her and her love for her home yes. is maybe. And I've heard that point. I've heard that point made before. And I and and um, I think that that's actually an excellent point. And I could certainly buy into that for sure. Like like no one gets between her and Tara and people try to get between her and Tara. And she always finds her way back to Tara. And even at the end, after Clark Gable says, I don't give a damn and walks away. The first thing she says is I'll go back to Tara. Right. And I'll never go hungry again. And so really in a way that's kind of the way it ought to have ended was her, her going back to Tara. The, the, the thing is even Tara is unattainable because the Tara that she fell in love with doesn't exist anymore right? after the Civil War, right? So every love that she could possibly have in a weird way is unattainable. So Damn. All right, moving on. Um, my number two favorite Best Picture winner of all time is from, we're moving ahead a little bit to the 1970s, and it's 1972, The Godfather. Yeah, I know it's the most Gen X thing imaginable. A dude, a fifty-year-old guy, fifty-two-year-old guy liking The Godfather, but <clears throat> there you have it. I mean, that movie is—you know—the word masterpiece. I think is thrown around a lot, and I'm going to throw it around again when I mention my number one movie. But I feel like I feel like The Godfather is—if if it's not a masterpiece, it's damn close to one. No, I mean, I I love I love that movie. It it really is, and like. I, I think the the dialogue in particular, I mean, iconic dialogue all throughout that movie. And yes. Marlon Brando's performance is absolutely insane. And the fact that that was Al Pacino's introduction is also absolutely nutty. Um, yeah. that, that was his first real foray into Hollywood. Um no, I mean I I love that movie. I think it's it's amazing. Well, and you think about you think about like the young actors that had either like got their start or it was very early in their career, right? It was Pacino, Robert Duvall, James Caan, oh, right. right? Um Talia Shire and um uh Was it early for yeah. Diane Keaton? Diane Keaton, yeah, Diane Keaton. Um yeah, I mean, she was very young in that, right? Like every, I mean, I, I'm sure she was in something before it, but I, I'm not sure what it was. But like, all of her signature roles came came, came after. after. <clears throat> um, so, and you know, you think about the people who were in, and then in The Godfather Part Two, right? And then Talia Shire was in a third Oscar winner when she was in Rocky. Diane Keaton was in a third Oscar winner in Annie Hall. Um, you know, all of these actors, you know, went on to to just have stellar, stellar careers. And it was really a, a passing the torch in a way, right? Like almost a literal passing the torch from Marlon Brando to these younger actors in Pacino yeah. and Khan and Duvall. And they took the reins and really went, went from there. I mean, there's a, a lot of the Godfather is very much a passing of the torch. It feels like a studio movie in a lot of ways, but it also it's very much, an avant-garde kind of like anti-establishment movie, even though it takes place a lot during the, you know, takes place during the forties. 
um, but it feels very, very anti-establishment. Well, that is really right. And that, that, I mean, I feel like the Godfather maybe a little before, but I really feel like the Godfather is the film that marks like the era of new Hollywood where you had these younger filmmakers kind of coming out of film school. You would, you know, obviously I think it was kind of the peak, right? Like it probably started a few years earlier within the heat of the night. And that like 1967 Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. probably like the first year of that but it it was ramping up um to to that moment because if you look at like what it beat it beat cabaret deliverance um the emigrants and sounder i don't know those films as well but then when you look at like what came up the year you know the following year it was the sting and american graffiti right. and the Exorcist, well, that was what i was right? really looking the at year, yeah yeah the year after that it was the godfather part two which won which beat chinatown and the conversation and lenny and the Tower in front right so we're definitely now moving away from the very much the studio system where everything was shot on a soundstage and the subject matter is more graphic and more, uh, uh, more and edgier, I should say. Yeah. All right. Well, we're way over time. So I'm going to very quickly go to my number one all time favorite best picture winner, which also happens to be tied for my number one favorite movie of all time. Can I guess it? Like, oh, dang it. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. What Was that what you were going to guess? That is what I was going to guess. Yeah, yeah. So I think we're talking 1941? Three. 1943. Sorry, 1943, Casablanca. Um, look, to me, Casablanca is as close to a perfect movie as there is. Story structure-wise, screenplay-wise, hero's journey-wise, acting-wise, the casting is superb in this movie. The direction is second to none. The compelling layers of the story and the character development that we get is, is riveting. And you want to talk about a great love story. I mean, what an amazing love story is going on and really two amazing love stories. And it's, they did a great job where they made, they created a love triangle and you still like the other, the third guy, right? The second guy, right? You, you, you don't, you don't, you're not rooting against him. You're kind of like, well, I kind of don't know what I want, right? And um, so, yeah, t- to me, uh, Casablanca is not only one of the great best picture winners, but really one of the great films ever made. And I don't think I'm really, that's not a hot take. I mean, AFI named it the number one or number two movie of all time. So, I mean, I'm not I'm not alone in that regard. Probably not. Yeah, we talked a lot about it in film school all the time. Yeah, this is actually one that I have not seen since you made me watch it when I was a kid and um, (laughs) I didn't like it then. And now I know I would like it. I just haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah. I I mean, (sighs) iconic, completely iconic. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we're, we've gone way over time. Thank you all for hanging in with us. Uh, And we will literally forever. We could probably talk about this for another hour if we really wanted to. Yeah. And maybe we will later. We'll see. Um, but uh, that's all for now, and we will be back another time. And and please do, if you if you feel like learning more about my feelings on the Oscars, you can definitely check out my blog. We'll put it in the comments section or the bio or wherever the heck we are going to put it. But it's uh, monumentscripts.com slash blog slash best picture winners. And uh, you can find it there. And uh, follow us on Instagram at genxvzpod. Um, and you can find me on Letterboxd at Mackenzie Kate. And you can find me on Letterboxd at BrianSMI71. And please rate us and like us and check us off and do all of those things. And come back again and listen to us next time. Thanks a lot. Bye.